one of the dangers of our familiarity with Psalm 23 is that we tend to know it by rote because it's so familiar to us. And what happens is that the more well-known the wording in the Bible is, the more hesitant modern translators are to depart from what everybody knows. And because of that, we fail to actually look carefully, I think, at some of the metaphors and nuances that are there in the original language. And I've tried to give you a more accurate sense of the passage this morning, a more nuanced translation of the psalm. So it's going to depart a little bit from what you understand, but I'm going to explain why I've put it here that way. And we're going to do this even though it might prove somewhat disagreeable to you, because you are so accustomed to the historical expression of it in the English Bible. So let's look at the text. The Lord shepherds me, and nothing for me will be lacking. In a place of tender grass, there he causes me to dwell. At a river of rest, he nourishes me. He turns around my soul. He leads me in straight paths on account of his name. For even if I should go in the middle of very thick darkness, I will not fear evil things, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my being afflicted. You anoint my head with olive oil, and your drinking cup is as satisfying as the very best wine. Your goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life and my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord for the length of days. I think there's three things actually in sort of an introductory idea here that make Psalm 23 unique. It's in, it's in Psalm 23 that we get a really clear picture of what God's heart is like, and God has the heart of a shepherd. The translation, the Lord shepherds me, is because in the Hebrew, the word shepherd is actually a verb. It's a participle. It's not a noun. And so we could just as easily translate as that as saying that the Lord tends to me. He pastures me. He feeds me. He herds me. He does everything for me that a shepherd does for his sheep. And David is indicating in this psalm that God has a caring and protecting, guiding, providing, and trustworthy heart toward his sheep because he has the heart of a shepherd. The Lord is a gentle and kind shepherd who both rules over his sheep and feeds them. In fact, God does all the things for his sheep that David did for his sheep while he was a shepherd. And because of his care, David is praising him for his mercy in providing for him. Secondly, I think Psalm 23 shows us what being a man after God's own heart means. I don't know about you, but for some time I always wondered what that actually meant. And I think Psalm 23 clarifies that for us. To be a man after God's own heart means to be a man who has the heart of a shepherd. The Lord told Samuel not to consider the other sons of Jesse, because the Lord does not see as a man sees, for the Lord looks at the heart while the man looks at the outward appearance. And that is why God chose David to be Israel's first king. If you'll remember, when David was anointed as king, the Bible says that it was because he was the one who led Israel out and brought them in when Saul was king over Israel. 
And the Lord said to him, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And at the close of Psalm 78, Asaph says this of David, God also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. He bought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. The third unique thing about Psalm 23, I think, is that it shows us how God really sees David. It's a unique psalm because David, near the end of his life as he's writing this, is not focusing on the many accomplishments that he's noted for throughout his life. He doesn't focus on being the noted warrior that killed Goliath. He doesn't focus on the fact that he was Saul's armor bearer. He doesn't focus on the fact that he was a loyal subject to his king the entire time Saul was king. He doesn't focus on the fact that he was a man of great courage in the face of danger even as a young man. It's noted in the Bible that he had sensible and wise speech, that he was a notably handsome man. Peter says in Acts 2.30 that David was a prophet. He was a hero, a national celebrity among Judah and Israel. He was a statesman. He was a poet, a skilled harpist, a singer, a songwriter, a servant of God. But in Psalm 23, David sees himself as he really is in God's eyes, putting aside all the glory and the pomp that came with being chosen the king of Israel. David sees himself the way God really sees all of Israel, the way God really sees all Christians, the way God sees each one of us as one of his sheep, prone to go astray, lost and perishing without the Lord's care, defenseless and in need of protection, prey to false, uncaring shepherds, easily scattered from the fold by wolves, unable to find suitable food and water for ourselves, and tempted to go and turn our own way. So let's look at the passage in different sections here. I've got like four sections I want to look at. And we'll go back to the, the original section of translating that God is a Yahweh is a shepherd. The Lord shepherds me. Nothing for me will be lacking. In a place of tender grass, there he causes me to dwell. At a river of rest, he nourishes me. He turns around my soul. It's interesting that David learned this lesson about nothing for me shall be lacking when Nathan confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba, of all places. And I want you to note the exact words that Nathan chooses to convict David of his sin, and it comes as a reminder to David that he is God's shepherd. I'll read it for you. It's only a few verses. Second Samuel 12. This is the time when Nathan went to David to convict him of his sin with Bathsheba. But listen to the wording that he chooses. Then the Lord said, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had 
bought and nourished, and they grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. In Hebrew, the literal translation is, This man is a son of death. So almost a year had gone by, and David had apparently not acknowledged yet that his sinful behavior with Bathsheba was stealing Bathsheba from Uriah. And David acknowledged that not taking from his own sheep and his own herds, which God had provided, shows that the rich man had no pity for the poor man. And then the last two verses in that section, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. So where the idea of stealing another man's wife might not have brought about the necessary conviction of sin that God was looking for, the idea of stealing another man's little you lamb is what greatly aroused David's anger because it spoke to David's heart of being a shepherd. So by taking Bathsheba, Uriah's one little ewe lamb, David proved his lack of concern, which should have led a good shepherd to spare Uriah the grief of losing his only beloved lamb. It's as if God was saying, David, why would you do that? I've given you everything so that you would want for nothing, And if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you much more. All that you have and need comes from my hand, David. It's as if God is asking, what kind of a shepherd would take someone else's lamb when I've given you exceedingly many flocks and herds? Who would do that? I've given you everything you have so that you would want for nothing. You know, we could talk about this idea of wanting and how it is that we want and how how much it can affect our thinking and our lives for several sermons because there are so many illustrations throughout Scripture about the danger of letting your desire for stuff and things become your chief means of satisfaction and security rather than the Lord being your satisfaction and security. So Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, about you cannot love mammon and God, you have to choose one or the other. It's impossible to do both. I was reminded of a really strange uh, example of this recently. My neighbor, I noticed that his car wasn't in the driveway for several days, and I saw him on Saturday and went up to him. I said, Tony, I see that your car's gone. What's, What's going on? He said, well, I was up in Washington taking care of my brother's estate, uh, he, he died recently, and I said, I'm sorry. And I said, well, what's going on? He said, well, 
I got a call from the police officer, the, the sheriff there, and he said that when he went into his house, it was the worst case of hoarding he's ever seen in his life. And when they found him, they found his body after it had been there for more than a month, decaying there in the little path in the middle of all the little paths there are that go to the rooms because the rooms were absolutely stuffed full of stuff. And if that wasn't enough, in the garage, you open the garage door and stuff just started to kind of, you know, file out. And then he had two huge containers outside that were also stuffed with things. But the thing that really troubled my friend and our neighbor, and that troubled me as well, was that the police officer had seen all these paths coming out of the woods and from other neighbors' houses going to the front door. And when the police officer got there, the front door had been broken in. And they discovered that cocaine addicts had been stepping over his dead, rotting, stinking body, stealing stuff from him. And it didn't seem to bother them at all that they were doing that. And if that doesn't speak to the greed and depravity of the human soul, I I don't know what does. That's just unfathomable to me. And all throughout Scripture, we see the expression of the sufficiency of God's grace to meet the needs of his people. They never lack when he desires to provide for them. And if you just go into the story of the Exodus, when the people followed God's command in the desert, they never lacked manna for 40 years. It's an amazing story of God's miraculous providence, actually. You remember the story, everyone went out every morning and gathered manna. And they always had enough. Enough is the key word there. And if they didn't trust God's providence for the following day and they gathered more so they could hold it over for the next day, lo and behold, it was filled with worms. Miraculously placed worms. Except on Friday, when they went out Friday, then they wouldn't have to go out on the Sabbath and collect. And then when they held it over for Sunday, that manna didn't have worms in it. That was the only time that what was held over didn't get worms. And for 40 years, God was teaching them to depend on his daily supply for food. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with wealth. It's the pursuit of wealth and the clinging to stuff and wealth as the means to your security in life. That's the chasing after the wind that Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's chasing after the wind because there's the illusion of having satisfaction because of all this stuff, but the satisfaction always eludes our grasp. It's the pursuit of treasures as your ultimate satisfaction and sense of security rather than the pursuit of God as your satisfaction and security. That is the vanity. Biblically, it's just bad reasoning to expect to find satisfaction and contentment in something other than God because the scripture is replete with telling us that God is our satisfaction. And this is what I think David finally came to realize as he wrote this psalm. Nothing for him will be lacking because he knows to wait for the things that come from the divine shepherd. Biblically, substitutes for contentment and satisfaction in things other than God himself don't exist, exist except in sinful pursuits. True satisfaction and contentment only comes with a trust and a confidence that what God has provided in his providence is the very best for us. But folks, 
The problem with wanting has to include the idea that God often protects us from those things we want, that if he had given them to us, they would be detrimental to us. How often have we desired things which would have injured us and been our ruin had God actually given them to us? How often have we despised being momentarily afflicted or poor when that is the blessing he has chosen for us for our own good? How often would we rather be successful financially or have more than our heart could wish or be admired by our fellow men when desiring these things would have made us forget God? Hasn't God also been shepherding us in a way that protects us from our own sinful desires? I want to have you see a, a brief video this morning, which is going to do two things. It's going to help us to understand what the term green pastures looks like in the deserts of Israel. And it's going to show us that what David means by green pastures here is that David has learned to trust that what the divine shepherd provides is always enough. I think David's point in Psalm 23 is that sheep in the desert pastures need a shepherd to lead them. There is sufficient grass, but it's sparse. Sheep left on their own will tend to wander off searching for grass and eventually die. So it's important for the, for the sheep to stay close to the shepherd as a matter of saving their life. And don't you love the statement about why the sheep don't need to worry under the care of the shepherd? Worry is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. In the desert, you learn that the shepherd will get you what you need right now. But ten minutes from now, you trust the shepherd to give you just enough. Folks, it's really no different for us today if we're living trusting the divine shepherd. We are learning to trust that what the divine shepherd provides is enough. So let me sum up the idea of the first paragraph there, how I see it all kind of connecting and tying together. When we're living in such a way that we are focused on God supplying all of our wants so that we lack nothing and so that we always have enough, that is what it means to live in a place of rest. The Lord is shepherding me like a sheep, and as a sheep I depend on him for everything so much so that I want for nothing because the shepherd really knows what I need and provides it for me. And because I trust his caring, protecting, guiding, providing, and trustworthy heart toward his sheep, I don't need to wander off to find my security and satisfaction anywhere else than in the green pastures where he's leading me. I want for nothing because I depend on him to know how I need to be shepherded. He knows when I need nourishment and rest and provides those for me. And because of my dependence on him, my whole life is nourished and rested as if I'm living by calm waters. He's the one who causes me to rest from the anxiety of trying to take care of myself. And when I do wander off to try to fill my own needs the way I see fit and depend on myself to meet my needs instead of the divine shepherd, I become anxious in my ability to meet those needs. 
And then he is the one who turns my soul around and brings me back to relying on him again. He restores my soul to a place where I again am relying on his provision. Whether it's my physical needs or my spiritual needs, when I wander off looking for what I think I need that he hasn't given me, I'm not resting in his care. When I'm not resting in his care, I'm not allowing him to be what he is, the divine shepherd. Well, the next section there is, I've headed Yahweh leads and comforts. The passage is, he leads me in straight paths on account of his name. For even if I should go in the middle of very thick darkness, I will not fear evil things. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So to be led in straight paths on account of his name means to be led on account of his attributes and his character. It means to have God before us showing the right way. Yahweh leads me in straight paths and... The truth is that sometimes those straight paths wind up in the middle of very thick darkness. I don't have anything to fear because you are there with me while you are leading me, even if you are leading me into very thick darkness. Even though he leads us in straight paths, that doesn't mean that we don't ever find ourselves in times where we are facing dark troubles. The phrase commonly translated, the valley of the shadow of death, is... More closely in Hebrew, though I walk through the valley of dense darkness. I think David is just referring to any troubling experience a believer passes through before he comes to die. Any obstacle which must be overcome or any grave danger which one might experience. I think this is the description of some kind of great darkness and trial. A time of uncommon distress that could so overpower a man's soul that it would feel like you were close to death. He doesn't really refer to death because he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of death or the valley of dense darkness, we don't walk through death. Death is the end of our physical life. This might even be descriptive of a living death in a way. In 2 Corinthians, Paul used the expression, in deaths often probably meaning experiences that could easily have led to my death if God had not been protecting me. And after that, he talks about whippings and beatings and being stoned and being shipwrecked and being floating around in the ocean for a day and a half. The phrase, the shadow of death, is found in several different locations in the Old Testament, actually, and we don't have time to look at those. But it implies being in circumstances of uncommon distress or terror. And sometimes in Scripture, God himself leads us into the affliction. A good example of that is in Lamentations chapter 3. Just let me share a couple of ideas there with you so you don't get the idea that God never leads us into the dark. Jeremiah, you know, we love, we love the verse at 3.22, through the, Lord's mercy, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is His faithfulness. But for the 21 verses before that, Jeremiah is explaining how God has led him into dark places. He says, 
I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. And then, he, I mean, it just gets, it, it's amazing the things that he says in that chapter. Before he gets to, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So he can see that God leads him in those places, but he still says God is faithful because he is. And the amazing thing is, God's intention is never to afflict us for the sake of afflicting us. God may lead us into affliction to cause us to seek Him in the midst of the affliction, because those are the times we think evil is there and He isn't. And so in verse 31, this is what Jeremiah says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, though He causes grief. Yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he does not afflict willingly. In Hebrew, that that is literally, he does not afflict from his heart. In other words, it's not his intention or motivation to inflict for the sake of afflicting us. But it may be to teach us other things. And I wouldn't want to divorce this idea completely from Psalm 23. I think it's unusual that David would place this in, in order that he has. Perhaps David is saying, I will fear no evil because God isn't threatened by darkness. It doesn't cause him terror. And no, no matter how dark a place is, God will lead his people through it so that they will fear no evil because there's no e- evil to fear when God is there because God isn't evil. He may lead us into affliction and grief, but he does not do that to afflict us from his heart. He does it so we can find him and look for him more carefully. Whether David is implying that God is the one leading him into the valley of deep darkness, the outcome is the same. He's the faithful one we can find comfort in, in spite of where we are. David is comforted by his rod, now think about this, and his staff, because he knows God is there holding them in the midst of deep darkness. It's not that his rod and staff are there and he's nowhere to be found. And then David goes into talking about, even though he's maybe led into the valley of deep darkness, Yahweh protects and provides for us. He says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my being afflicted. You anoint my head with olive oil, and your drinking cup is as satisfying as the best wine. I didn't use the translation in the presence of my enemies, because, again, the word enemies is actually a participle. It's a verbal idea, not a noun. The sense is that God prepares a table before me where he arranges all the dishes in order in the presence of my harassment and torment in the presence of my affliction. Translating it as something like, you set a table before me in the presence of my being afflicted, in the presence of my distress from the harassment, keeps the verbal idea intact, even though it's not familiar to us. You'd expect that God would carefully set out a table for someone he's shepherding and protecting, away from those things, or persons who afflict and torment us, and away from terribly trying circumstances. 
What seems odd to me immediately is that this table seems to be set for an ordinary, peaceful situation. Nothing is hurried. There's no confusion, no disturbance. There's no snatching a quick bite before you run out the back door while the harassment's coming after you. The enemy's at the door, and yet God has prepared a table, and the Christian can know that God can bless him in the midst of any situation. Even in the most dismal situation, God can bless us if everything were as if everything were in perfect peace. I think David is just saying that his experience has been that Jehovah has given him perfect peace in the midst of the most trying circumstances. In the midst of the darkest afflictions. And most of us have been spared of that so far. Some of us haven't been spared of that. When we, when I was first going to seminary and Sheila and I were living in Portland, we were going to um, church in Gladstone, Gladstone First Baptist, and the pastor was Wayne Fraze. And a great man of God, Wayne Fraze. And I was sitting with him one afternoon and I said, Wayne, I don't understand this peace that passes all understanding. What, what does that mean? You ever thought about that? Because, oh yeah, I've thought about that. I had an experience that told me all about that. He said, many years ago, I had a three-year-old son, and I had called in a, a babysitter to babysit for, for him. And it was a teenage girl. And we left, and we went to Washington to go to dinner. And as most teenage girls do, they were watching television and reading books and talking on the telephone, and she completely was ignoring the three-year-old. And after a while, she realized that she didn't know where he was, and she went up to the bathroom, and he had gone into their bathroom and had eaten a bottle of aspirin and was laying on the floor. And she immediately called 911, and the ambulance was there immediately and took him to the hospital. And she called Wayne Fraze and his wife were in Washington, and they, you know, hurriedly came back down. And he had been a chaplain and was familiar with the hospital. So when he found out where his child was, what floor, he, he said he was going up the stairs really quickly. And when he got to the hallway, he just started running down the hallway. And at the end of the hallway where his child was in that room, he saw the doctor come out and take one look at him. And he knew instantly that his child was dead. Didn't even have to talk to the doctor. And he said, Rick, that was the moment when I experienced a peace like I've never experienced before in my life. It just flowed over my entire body while I was in the midst of what I, I thought would be absolute, the, absolutely the darkest affliction I could imagine. And I guess if I'm going to be honest with you and ask myself how I'm applying this in my life, I'm not sure right now. That when those times of distress and affliction come, and we know that they're probably going to come, that I will be absolutely convinced that God will have a table prepared for me in the midst of all that where I'll be blessed in the midst of that situation as if everything is just fine. And of course, we won't know that until we're in the midst of it, will we? And Scripture is replete with God's rescuing David from... It's David that he rescues, is it? Jeremiah wrestled with great loneliness and feelings of defeat and insecurity and walking through great tribulation, and he can say, Great is thy faithfulness. Your compassions are unceasing. 
Joseph spent time in prison at God's beckoning. Elijah was discouraged and worried and afraid. Jonah was angry with God and ran in the opposite direction. Job suffered great loss, physical illness, and loss of family, and absolute devastation from his friends at the hand of God's leading. And so we have a testimony in the, in the Old Testament of just how faithful God is in the midst of those situations. And perhaps you or people you know have had those same things happen. But how many of God's people have walked through those times of great trouble but have never deserted God because of the trouble? In fact, that's when they looked for him the most carefully. That's when they were able to be comforted like they hadn't been apart from those times of being in great distress and affliction. And then, this just seems so odd to me, this is the, the way David has put this together. He says, right after that, he says, you anoint my head with oil. Literally, you make fat all my blessings. Even in times of affliction and distress, you bless me with festivity and joy. You bless me with gladness to the point where my cup of joy is filled to saturation and abundance, just as if I was drinking the very best wine I could possibly taste. Isn't that just David's recognition that all things are prepared for the child of God? We can feast in spite of our temporary affliction and harassment, confident that God's favor will ever be with us because David is showing us what being shepherded by the divine shepherd really looks like. It looks like confidence in the midst of trouble and confidence in his ability to shepherd us as we rest by still waters in the midst of the trouble. Saturated with joy even in the midst of affliction and harassment. Well, he closes the psalm with the statement that Yahweh pursues us. Your goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life, and my dwelling will be in the house of the Lord for the length of days. What a wonderful picture this is of, of God's goodness and mercy towards David. Literally in Hebrew it says, Your goodness and mercy are chasing me. They're pursuing me. They're dogging me in a good sense. They're following me around. They're checking my movements closely and persistently. His goodness and mercy are attending closely upon David, he's saying, even though he walks through the valley of deep darkness. Even though affliction and harassment are right there, there's that overflowing cup of blessing and joy. What a realization about the, the character and person of God. This must be the verse that triggered that famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, don't you think? The Hound of Heaven is, is the entire uh, poem, The Hound of Heaven, is in John Stott's first book, Why I Am a Christian, in which he confesses that he's a Christian not because of the influence of his parents or of his teachers or because he made a personal decision for Jesus, but because he was relentlessly pursued by the Hound of Heaven, that is, Jesus Christ himself. That's why he's a Christian. The conclusion to the psalm is David's recognition of the reality of the divine shepherd's unrelenting request 
for us and seeking us out. The divine shepherd has given us every reason to trust in his care and providence, even in the midst of our wondering where he might be in the valley of deep darkness. Even in the midst of our consistent rebellion and resistance to him. You know, the real truth about us and the real secret of our feelings and the true tempo of life set by our culture and the real tragedy of human life, life is that we are not really attempting to find him. He's pursuing us. Most sheep left to themselves would be perfectly happy to wander off, not allowing him to shepherd us at all. We seem to want the blessings without the one who blesses. We have this rather silly idea of worship services for seekers. There aren't any seekers seeking God. It says in Scripture, there are none who seek him, no, not one. The only seeker in the Bible, folks, is God himself. And so now, near the end of his life, David can write, having looked back at the amazing care God has provided for him throughout his whole life. It is God's relentless love and pursuit of David in spite of the adultery and the murder and the hypocrisy and the trials and the troubles and the deep darkness that makes David finally confess, cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me unto the joy of your salvation. Not only did God forgive him, but he also restored him to the point where one author said this, David preaches God's care from every Christian pulpit. God's mercy and goodness sings from every hymn book. And his psalms are the pillow of comfort beneath the head of the afflicted and the harassed and the dying. Here in Psalm 23 is no strife, no fear, no denunciation, no self-suspicion, as David looks back over his life with a divine shepherd. And I can only guess how pleased God must have been when David wrote this simple and thoughtful song that reflects what his life has been like because he's been under the care of a loving shepherd. How pleased God must be to see David be this aware this thankful, this reliant on God's presence in his life, this appreciative, this peaceful, this assured of God's gracious and merciful care for him, this humbled by God's love, this overwhelmed and in awe of a life under God's shepherding care and protection and guidance and provision and trustworthiness. Folks, can can it be any different for us? Would God not be as pleased with our frequent praises and thankfulness for his care for us? Care that only comes from a loving and divine shepherd. And so the greatest example of God's pursuit of us is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the the greatest pursuit of us, is in the provision of Jesus. And God has prepared this table, which we celebrate in communion with him and with each other, as a symbol and a reminder of his care and love for those of us who believe and trust in the divine shepherd. The communion table confirms, reminds, and invigorates our faith. It strengthens our love and our commitment to Christ. And it reminds us of the divine shepherd's commitment of faithfulness and his merciful pursuit of us 
during our lives, even before we became believers. And so I'd like you to take a moment to reflect on this psalm. And as you come to take the elements back to your seat during the next song, where we will partake of them together as a body.